0: Welcome to Liberated, a Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm Laura Sheeter. This episode, we're talking about housing. This is a topic rarely discussed without the word crisis cropping up. And its effects are enormous. The lack of affordable housing, poor tenants' rights, the terrible impact of insecure housing and homelessness on individuals and families and the effect on towns and cities of the people who do essential jobs not being able to live where they work. Our expert guest is George Turner. He's an investigative journalist and housing campaigner and was the Lib Dem candidate for Vauxhall in the general election, standing against Labour's Kate Hoey. I started by asking George about the focus of his housing campaigns and investigations.
1: Mostly it's been in the area of what I would term affordable housing avoidance. So how developers get out of their obligations to build affordable housing through various accounting tricks and surveying tricks and smoke and mirrors and games that they play negotiating with councils. Uh, And why I got interested in this subject is because... In um, around 2013 I was working with a local community around the Shell Centre in Waterloo, previously where your office was, was. <laughs> and uh, there was a redevelopment there for 800 new homes and I was leading the opposition to it and I was so outraged by some of the stuff was going on that I decided to launch a court action against it and ended up in the Court of Appeal. And along the way, found out much of the detail, I mean, was getting leaked stuff by financiers, And we found that, you know, on the one hand, they were telling investors they were making tons of money. On the other hand, they were telling the council they weren't making any money and therefore they can't build affordable housing. So I started writing about it.
0: We're recording this in the week before the budget where it's been widely trailed. There's going to be a lot about housing, about what Theresa May had called Britain's broken housing market and about the housing crisis. You had Sajid Javid talking about a generational divide that millennials aren't able to afford housing and that maybe baby boomers don't see that crisis. Vince, is this a crisis? What is the scale of the problem?
2: It's a massive issue. It isn't just a marginal issue. I mean, the supply of new houses coming into the market for many years has been way below what is necessary in order to keep the market stable in terms of price. And we've seen The price used to be traditionally about three and a half in relation to people's income. It's now seven or eight across the country. In London, it's well into double figures. So it means anybody even remotely near average income, even if you have two earners in a family, can't begin to contemplate a mortgage for purchase, which is why owner occupation for under... 40s is now about 25% or less i think and those are mostly people who've got parents who can help them it's quite a deep social problem not not just um, bricks and mortar type issue i totally sympathize with what- has been doing, trying to get affordable housing on the back of private development, and anybody in local government knows this is a constant battle. I would actually feel we've got to get beyond that. Actually, the private developers cannot deliver the supply because they depend on having rising prices. They don't have the capacity, they don't have the inclination, they have no incentive to maximise production. Um, And to be frank, the only people who can do that is the state. The policy's got to be driven by government and local councils. The councils have got to have greater freedom to borrow, you've got to have a state which is much more proactive, using compulsory purchase, getting land at its underlying value, and just getting on and massively increasing supply, albeit of the proper quality.
0: You're a constituency MP. What kind of knock-on problems is this having for your constituents? Is this part of your caseload and people come to you with housing problems?
2: Well, the demographics of this area are changing quite markedly. You cannot buy a house here unless you have an income of somebody who's got quite a high paid income in the city, for example. A teacher, a police officer, a young doctor would find it impossible now to buy in most parts of my constituency. When I first started, it was a relatively mixed area with some working class, some middle class, some very rich people. It's now becoming monocultural Um, and very different and of course the people have been squeezed all the time particularly in the rental sector which is going way beyond what most working families can afford the housing benefit is being squeezed the council is now expecting a council tax contribution so many of these people have been pushed out of their homes pushed into homelessness and so you see real real distress and I've got my uh, weekly advice surgery in a hours time and i'll get a lot of that that
1: is the perplexing thing really in terms of the economics of this i mean i remember reading an article from the telegraph in 2012 which basically said anyone wanting to buy a house now is mad because average house prices are so far beyond average income that the long-term trend must be for house prices to come down so we must be at the top of the market and be crazy to buy houses in 2012 and we've had year-on-year house prices increase since that so If housing is beyond the means of homeowners, essentially, there must be other people who are supporting the market, Uh, and primarily that would come in the form of buy-to-rent landlords. And then in London, there's been this story about offshore investment and so on. Although I think that's not just a London issue, because in Liverpool, they have a similar thing on the waterfront developments there. Now, is there something that can be done to manage sources of demand from those places so, that we can actually get a situation where house prices trend back towards what is affordable for homeowners?
2: Well, I think there is an element that the price is being driven by artificially inflated demand as well as inadequate supply. So where does the demand come from? I mean, I used to take the view in the build-up to the financial crisis that it was partly caused by the banks lending recklessly 125% of um, property value by Northern Rock, being a sort of classic example. So there was an element of a bubble in it. The point that George makes, I think I would highlight this utter complete stupidity of the help to buy scheme. I spent time in government often in a public quarrel with Osborne about this, which is effectively subsidizing purchase, which of course simply has the effect of driving the price up even further. But in addition to those financially driven elements of demand, there are for example foreign buyers that has been a, certainly a factor in central london and i'm not nationally i don't think that is a factor but i think nor can you discount the fact that the population is rising and that has had the effect of driving up demand too
1: and household formation is increasing as well i mean not just population people are breaking up. family breakup is a key cause of housing demand you know you have one family unit and that needs that has one home and needs two homes after that
0: when we talk about housing and, uh, and lack of affordability, often we end up talking about London and the southeast because obviously this is where the pressure is at its height. But is this something that's familiar to people in other parts of the country, as far as you know?
1: Well, I think, as Vince outlined, it's really about the private development industry. You know, they have no incentive to build cheap homes. They make their money from building as expensive homes as possible. That prices many people out of market because the new housing supply is not actually meeting the demand where it's needed. And so what is desperately needed is some sort of intervention that targets the lower end of the market. Traditionally that has been council housing, but we've not seen councils build council housing for many years.
2: It is not just London. I mean, and the whole of the South East has got this problem, but it is not just there. Oxford and Cambridge are probably the main hotspots in the country, even more than London. Uh, the Lake District, I was up in Tim Farron's constituency, housing completely unaffordable for low-income families. You know, even in the north of England, where you haven't had the same demographic pressures and the economy has been less dynamic. You, you have areas in the north of England where house prices have reached extraordinary levels. This is a much bigger problem and that there is an additional issue with, say, the Midlands and the north of England, which is there is probably quite a lot of grand land. But to develop it often involves the extra costs associated with dealing with contaminated land. And often the developers can't see the margin in that kind of business, so the development never takes place. I mean, you can still find places where housing is cheap. I mean, if you go to Burnley, you can buy a decent house for 100000 I'm told. But, you know, the problem there is where are the jobs?
0: Some of the people listening to the podcast were talking about much broader issues, talking about you've got a national plan, but when it comes down to it, then there's local opposition. So does this mean we need an overhaul of the planning laws, for example, was one of the questions I was asked.
2: Yeah, this is very tricky if you're a local MP. I mean, every development that's happening in Twickenham at the moment, people are writing letters of protest to me can I intervene on their side their light's been blocked or there are too many cars in the street and this is outrageous and it's spoiling our view and sometimes these are legitimate objections and sometimes they're rather petty but you know they are powerful and you get genuine dilemmas you know do you allow development on bits of playing fields and somebody will come along with a proposal that will build on a quarter of the playing field and the rest of it will be community use so do you take the bait or don't you these developments this dilemmas are happening the whole time and I think it's most acute in the case of greenbelt land because the, the rationale behind the greenbelt is a very good one but we know that there's a lot of greenbelt land that isn't high amenity and it's very tempting to say well okay let's use it.
1: The term the greenbelt is somewhat misleading mm-hmm. Because it gives the idea that A, it's green, and as you say, a lot of it is not great amenity. You know, there's old industrial sites that form part of the Green Belt. And B, that it is a belt, that it is a kind of narrow strip of land around London to constrain development. But the Green Belt extends to north of Oxford. Somebody was telling me that the amount of land in the Green Belt is something like four or five times the size of London. So, It's a policy which is developed in a certain way after the Second World War and probably was developing at a time when our housing needs were completely different from where they are today and does really need to be revisited. I mean, we do need, we can't have urban sprawl, right? We can't have Los Angeles being built on the Thames. But that doesn't
2: mean we need to shut off half of southern England to development at the same time. I mean, are, I, mean, it's a- I mean, there are some very good models about how you reconcile the two. Matthew Taylor, who's a Lib Dem peer, has done some very, very good work on housing, and he talks about how you develop vill- villages, which may be within the green belt area, but they're self-sustaining villages. But they probably only have two thousand people living in them. They can't support a post office. They can't support a pub. But if you grew them to ten thousand, you'd have enough people for the basic amenities for a primary school and there would actually be more vibrant communities. But you protect the area around them, but you develop a a little urban hub. So a combination of that and new towns, which are developed on good environmental principles, keep the essential spirit of having a green country, but they accommodate more people.
0: As I mentioned, we're recording this before the budget, where they're trailing that they will be saying something. It seems that all the parties accept, or at least use the phrase, housing crisis. What are you hoping will be announced by the government? And And then secondly, what are you expecting?
2: Well, the key thing the government can do is to radically expand its own willingness to borrow on the public sector balance sheet or to allow councils to do so. And you then get this howl of protest. Well, we can't have the government borrowing. This is imposing a burden on the next generation. Well, the problem is if you don't do it, then you impose a burden on the next generation because of all the public money that's been spent on housing benefit and um, help to well, buy and schemes well. and, 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 and indeed rents. Yes. So, you know, the government has got to be willing to pursue much more aggressive policies in terms of capital borrowing.
0: One thing that uh, a few listeners have mentioned to me and something that a few of them are campaigning on was talking about renters' rights. Saying, say, well, OK, we understand there's a shortage of housing, but what about actually improving the circumstances of people renting now?
1: Well, I think it has to be done because some of the conditions that people are living in are absolutely shocking. And the statutory minimum standards is poor. I think it's something like six square metres is the minimum standard for a bedroom, which is tiny. And one of the articles I worked on, actually, was about people who are renting homes that were 10 square metres and charging £1,000 a month in rent. Now, that kind of thing shouldn't really be allowed. Now, there has been a resistance within the Liberal Democrats historically to imposing regulations, but, you know, maybe things have
2: moved on. So I'd be interested to hear your views on this. Well, there obviously is abuse in the rental market, and you've got to protect people against that. There were a few steps that have been taken. Sarah Tether, I think, brought in legislation when she was an MP about the abuse of the deposit schemes and things of that kind. There are very bad landlords and it is the duty of local councils supported by legislation to take action against them. But one of the ironies here is that although People are being pushed into smaller and smaller, more crowded accommodation. There is massive underoccupation of property. But it's, it's something people don't like to talk about because this is often older people. The coalition government made itself terribly unpopular by introducing the so-called bedroom tax in social housing. But actually, it's in privately owned housing that the underoccupation problem is much, much worse, and it is older people. And this is all linked to the system of property taxation, that there is no real incentive to move out of underoccupied property. But unfortunately, the political consequences of trying to penalise people who are under-occupied are so severe, nobody likes to talk about it. But actually, there is an issue there, which I'm afraid at some point we're going to have to grasp.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, my parents are in this position, right? My brother and I have moved out of the house. They live in a three-bedroom house, and there's just the two of them. And in my view, it's completely in their benefit to downsize, right? Yeah. They can, you know, put the money in. it makes a difference in their pension fund, and it probably would be a spur to them to get rid of a lot of stuff in their house that they shouldn't have there anymore (laughs) Um, but all that is very difficult and actually I think you know I'd like to think that perhaps this is not really the case that if you kind of gave people an encouragement to do so they would actually see the benefits of it.
2: Well there's one simple mechanism we rely far too much on stamp duty as a system of property taxation which of course discourages people from buying and selling and pushes people to just sit tight so um, you know I think a combination of that and having council tax that's proportional to the price of property these are quite tricky things I have to say but might provide some kind of incentive to freeing up underused property.
0: We talked about the personal impacts on people who are unable to afford housing and to afford rent but actually what about the impacts on cities like London where you have professions that can't live here you mentioned in Twickenham doctors nurses teachers not being able to afford to live in the area how significant do you think it is
2: it's a, t- it's a terrible problem I and mean, I've just done a grand tour of all my local schools since I got re-elected and there was one where I think they'd had 14 teachers drop out in the summer term and most of it was pressure on their living standards and some of them are having to commute very long distances if you go down to the local police station um, this is southwest london they're having to come in from windsor or slough or reading or places like this because they can't afford anywhere nearer and it's not just environmentally very damaging but it's bringing tremendous stress to bear on people who've got quite stressful jobs
1: yeah absolutely i mean my wife's a primary school teacher and so in her school in central london in elephant and castle huge turnover of staff for that reason because if you're a If you're working in a public sector job, you can actually work, you know, you have the freedom to move outside of London, right, and move to other places which have a cheaper standard of living. So kind of why wouldn't you? And that means that places in central London or other city centres that are high cost really suffer from that. And the kind of compensation you get, as in London waiting and so on, just isn't nearly enough to even start to cover the increase in costs of living.
0: So, George, I asked Vince this. I'm going to ask you: What are you hoping, and also, what are you expecting you might see in the budget as a policy that would make a difference to this?
1: Well, I mean, I guess I'll start with expecting, and probably not much, because there's been a history of big rhetoric with little delivery. So, I think I'm right in saying at the Tory Party conference there was this big announcement of, you know, X amount of money to house building when they worked it out on the. You know, it was tiny compared to the amount of money they were going to pump through to, to increasing help to buy and so on which just as vince said increases house prices so not expecting a huge amount but um, i think what i'd like to see is the state taking a much more active role in house building but also a lot of the cases that i've been looking at in central london are around the state regeneration And you've had these horrific examples where people are getting compulsory purchased, you know, they've bought their homes under right to buy, they're being subject to compulsory purchase, tenants are being not moved out so that they can level a council estate and rebuild it mostly as private housing. And councils seem very, very willing to use compulsory purchase powers against those kinds of residents but seem much, much less willing to use compulsory purchase powers in other parts of the country or
2: to
1: to acquire land and I just don't see why we should have people sitting on land banks across the country and councils not just using the powers of compulsory purchase they have to do so when they're very willing to turf people out of low-cost housing in city centres to do the same.
0: So you're saying they have those powers but they're not using them equitably?
1: Yeah, and it's a very complicated process and it takes years and it's difficult and so on. But there is clearly a political will to do it. I mean, if you're a football stadium in North East London like Tottenham uh, and you want to expand your stadium, Haringey Council are very happy to use compulsory powers to... Turf businesses out of industrial parks and so on, but other councils around the country seem much less willing to use those powers to, you know, build new towns or expand cities, expand towns.
0: Do you think it is a question of political will, Vince? Yeah,
2: yes, I think in, it, at the end of the day it is. I mean, if you just pose it in rather crude terms, that if if we are successful in building a lot more houses. We all agree that we need to do that, then the basic logic is that house prices don't rise as rapidly or they fall. And of course, nobody wants to tell existing homeowners that the objective of policy is to drive house prices down. <laughs> and so there's a, there is a fundamental conflict of interest between owners and people who are currently shut out of the market. But I'm afraid, given the urgency of the problem, we have to think first of all, about helping the people who are currently outside the market get into it.
0: But realistically, how likely are we to meet those targets, given that, in particular, about the shortage of builders with uh, the potential, you know, Britain leaving the European Union as well?
2: Well, there are two issues here. One is that a lot of small builders have gone out of business. They were killed off in the financial crisis because they couldn't get credit. One of the things we tried to reinstate when I was in the government was a small builder loan scheme, but as far as I can gather, it's only had marginal impacts. So building has become more and more concentrated in a small number of big development companies and the second issue is skills and you know we are very highly dependent on Eastern Europeans in particular to do not just menial tasks but you know site management multi-skilling around joinery and electrics and the rest of it and we're now losing those people. The British training system has long been defective. We began to improve it in the coalition years, but the government's now screwing it up through this ridiculously mismanaged apprenticeship levy. So I'm afraid, yeah, we're in a tight corner on skills.
1: And one of the other things people is the Ricks are saying that that the house prices are starting to fall already in London and that's spreading out to south east England and maybe to the rest of the country because of Brexit. I mean, do you think that's really gonna happen or is that so
2: Well it was one of the things which the Treasury predicted and of course everybody laughed at the time and said this is you know they've been proved wrong and stupid George Osborne and the Treasury but actually it is happening but it's happening in a slower more gradual way but house prices have got to fall for the right reason not because of a collapse of confidence but because more houses are being built.
0: Just finish up by asking you George then where are your current campaigning interests at the moment?
2: well
1: i'm very interested in this abuse of housing benefit claimants by abusive landlords so this issue i mentioned earlier about these 10 square meter homes the reason why they can charge thousand pounds a month for them is because they can get housing benefit claimants in there Uh, and that's the maximum housing benefit in london but they're really being warehoused they're taking housing benefit claimants and warehousing them in these tiny apartments in order to get maximise the rent from the floor space and what they're doing is renting out these tiny rooms for if you look at it on a per square meter basis it's higher than luxury housing in Kensington and Chelsea and it's really all down to an abuse of the housing benefit system so I'm looking into how we can get that changed.
0: Thanks for listening to Liberated. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do rate, review and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. As you heard, we're also putting your questions to Vince. So please do check our Facebook page and look for posts on other Lib Dem sites where we'll be letting you know what topic we want questions on next. We're at Liberated Pod on Twitter and Liberated Podcast on Facebook. Thanks to George Turner for joining the conversation and to Mark Pack and Benjamin Leal for their invaluable support making this series.